there is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. There's a quote by Polish-American author Jerzy Kaczynski that states, the principles of true art is not to portray, but to evoke. Now, the Outer Limits certainly fits that criteria in my eyes. There are a few episodes where the show, which is already firing on all cylinders, reaches that next level. Those are the episodes that feature two key components, working perfectly in conjunction with each other. Gorgeous imagery and beautiful melodies. Dominic Frontieri composed original scores for 13 first season episodes which were spread out throughout the first season and in some instances fused with other previously written material. As Reba Wisner points out in We Will Control All That You Hear, The Outer Limits and The Aural Imagination, of the 32 episodes from the first season, 20 use musical cues from Daystar Productions' previous television series, Stony Burke. I'll give Daystar Productions and the significance of Stony Berg in reference to The Outer Limits the proper focus it deserves in a future episode. It's my plan to cover key players every couple of episodes. So fret not, my friends. Everyone will be covered in due time. In tonight's episode, we are treated not only to an original score by Dominic Frontieri, but also the beautiful imagery of Conrad Hall's cinematography. Now you may remember a few episodes back I was gushing over the cinematography of The Architects of Fear and The Hundred Days of the Dragon. Now what I failed to point out is that the masterful control of shadow and lighting in those episodes was attributed to one man, Conrad Hall. Those two episodes also feature the wonderful combination of Hall's imagery with an amazing frontiery score and the result is an amazing viewing experience. In this excerpt from David J. Scallop's The Outer Limits Companion, Leslie Stevens says the following about Conrad Hall. Connie Hall could get so much out of so little. Once he was shooting someone on a balcony through the branches of a willow tree. He tied a rope to the branches of the tree and had someone pull it very gently, giving the branches this wonderful subtle motion. It cost 15 cents more and made all the visual difference in the world. Another time, he lit an actress from the center of her forehead with a tiny light used for close-ups. I asked him what he was doing that for, and he said, wait till you see it on film. The next day, we ran the rushes, and every time she blinked, these tiny little shadow lines of eyelash were thrown all the way down her face. It's that type of outside-the-box thinking that gave Conrad Hall such a striking visual style. In The Outer Limbs Companion, there's a quote from Hall that states, there were TV technicians telling me things like, I had to have a 2 to 1 lighting ratio or people wouldn't be visible on TV. Well, people don't have to be visible all the time. Sometimes their outline is enough. We handled the show as if it were a non-electric medium. I made it look as if it was going to be seen on a motion picture screen. And what the experts didn't understand was that it was better. In every instance where they said it won't look good on television, they were wrong. Because I'd seen it. And it looked great. Now, simply describing his imagery doesn't do it any sort of justice. 
you'll have to see it for yourself. If you're a first time viewer of the series and you find yourself thinking, wow, that was a great looking sequence, chances are you're watching an episode that Conrad Hall had worked on. He would go on to work on numerous feature films, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, American Beauty, and Road to Perdition, all three of which he won Oscars for. Conrad Hall passed away on January 4th, 2003, and was posthumously awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on May 1st, 2003, making him one of only six cinematographers to have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. His work lives on at home video, and he will continue to inspire generations of filmmakers and cinematographers for years to come. Tonight's episode is a special one. Along with amazing music and imagery, we get a story that is extremely thought-provoking, so much so that you can recognize elements of it from other movies and TV series that have come along since. We've all had quiet moments of reflection, and surely we've wondered how things would have turned out had certain events in our lives played out differently. Would it be enough to drastically change your path in life? Would you be the person you are today, or someone completely unrecognizable, at least from a personality standpoint? This is something I've thought about quite often growing up. You know, if you'll allow me to pull back the curtain a bit, I was involved in an accident at a young age that involved a drunk driver that left one of my arms permanently damaged. Now, I was so young at that time, I have no memory of life any other way. But later on down the line, I would often wonder how differently my life would have turned out had I had slept in just a little longer that morning. In tonight's story, Andro is a character who is disfigured by a microbe that has infected humanity for generations. He uses the power of hypnotic suggestion to appear normal to people in the present day. Now if I had such an ability, it certainly would have made my teen years a little less awkward, that's for sure. Thankfully, now I can look back and recognize the path and subsequent life lessons that came from that one moment in time. Had I indeed slept in that morning, would I be sitting here now? What type of person would I have become? Would something else possibly even worse have happened? Who knows? Now, as always, I will be spoiling tonight's episode, so if you haven't seen The Man Who Was Never Born, you can find it in beautiful Blu-ray high definition from the good folks at Kino Lorber. You can find it also on Amazon, or streaming on Hulu if you're a paid subscriber. Now let's step aside and let Vic Perrin's control voice take us into tonight's episode, The Man Who Was Never Born. Here in the bright clustered loneliness of the billion billion stars, loneliness can be an exciting voluntary thing, unlike the loneliness man suffers on Earth. Here, deep in the starry nowhere, a man can be as one with space and time. Preoccupied, yet not indifferent, anxious, and yet at peace. His name is Joseph Reardon. He is, in this present year, 30 years old. This is the first time he has made this journey alone. First broadcast on October 28, 1963, starring Martin Lando, written by Anthony Lawrence, directed by Leonard Horn, who will return to direct The Zanti Misfits and The Children of Spider County. Director of Photography, Conrad Hall. We open with astronaut Joseph Reardon, who is orbiting the Earth when he suddenly encounters a rift in space. Unable to establish contact with base, he descends to the planet. Reardon exits his spacecraft to find only barren dirt and volcanic rock. 
A figure is shown watching him from afar. Reardon ventures forth when he turns and comes face to face with the being. Where am I? What planet is this? It is called Earth. Earth. No, I left Earth eight months ago. Eight months ago? Impossible. No one has left or returned to Earth in almost 200 years. I did. Eight months ago. February 3rd, 1963. The year is 2148. Well, it couldn't be. It must be 1963. It must be. Time and space are indivisible. Somehow, in your travels, you move from one to the other. Now, something happened, a chill, brightness. I seemed to collapse inside as if I were going into a convulsion. A time convulsion, which brought you into the future. Andro is played by Martin Landau, an actor who certainly needs no introduction. His numerous acting credits include appearances in Mission Impossible, Space 1999, Rawhide, and Ed Wood, where he famously played Bella Lugosi. He also made a stopover into the Twilight Zone where he played Dan Hoddling in the episode Mr. Denton on Doomsday. This episode wastes no time establishing the foundation of the story. Well, what could have happened? Hydrogen war? No. No, there was no war. We are the remaining survivors of the human race. If you're human, you're a mutation. Oh, it couldn't have happened in only 200 years. No, no, not a normal evolution. It was not normal. You said there was no war. Landau delivers an amazing performance in this next clip. The tone of his words and the look in his eyes convey the sorrow and weariness of a dying species on the brink of extinction. This moment is enhanced even further by Dominic Frontieri's score playing underneath and Conrad Hall's lighting of Andro's face. When the concern of man is only in preparation for defense against himself, he is not prepared for the unforeseen. An extraterrestrial microbe was developed and corrupted by a renowned biologist for his own ambitious reasons. We recall his name. Bertram Cabot, Jr. We have memorized every detail of his life, his various addresses, his cares, his joys, his friends, his family. Noel, they called his mother. <laughs> Noel. A woman who issued destruction for all future Christmases. Reardon stands in disbelief. The human race, which has advanced so far to the point of spaceflight, will soon be sent hurtling back to the Stone Age by a microbe. A microbe destroyed humanity. There were side effects to the symbiote which Cabot isolated and developed. Side effects he did not foresee, which brought about genetic changes and inhibited our ability to reproduce. What you see here is essentially the work of one man, Bertram Cabot, Jr. Come, I will show you all that is left of moments 
men and places. Andro takes Reardon down to what looks like a bunker. He opens the door to reveal countless shelves of books. The lighting in this scene has Conrad Hall's fingerprints all over it, right down to the circular lights shining on an otherwise boring wall. Here, here lies the protected history of man. The cherished words and pictures of all he has known and loved. The noble Hamlet. Anna Karenina putting on her gloves on a snowy evening. Gatsby in white flannels. Moby Dick. And Mark Twain's whole meandering Mississippi. Melville. Hope proves a man deathless. There is no hope here. There has to be. There is no future. Only the safe and dear upholstered memories. You said your minds, your psyches were so advanced. Why couldn't you find a cure or some way out? It was too late. The only positive cure was in preventive medicine. But man was too busy, too busy going to the moon. Too busy clubbing his brothers over the head with his newfound toy, the atom, to anticipate and resist the parasite that was to suck out his right to immortality. I can't believe it's going to come to this. I won't. If I can find the time warp again, go back through it. Back? Back through time? Well, I came here, didn't I? And nobody's proved it's a one-way street. I'll go back. I'll tell them what's ahead, what they have to prepare themselves for. But even if you made it, they'd, they'd hardly believe you. Well, I'll make them believe me. They think you're a fool or a psychotic, but there is a way. You can take me with you. Well, there's a possibility we couldn't make it back. Well, it's better to die than sit and watch the world die. Well, if you're a... afraid that I'll frighten them unnecessarily, I have the ability to change my appearance through hypnotic suggestion. I can... No. No. That's the one thing we want them to do, see you exactly as you are. That will make them believe us. Reardon and Andra return to orbit around the Earth, searching for the time rift. Reardon puts the ship on autopilot, leans back, and begins to think. What course might history have taken if Alexander, Napoleon, Hitler had never existed? What if Bertram Cabot Jr. had never been born? Just then, the ship begins to pass through the time rift. The ship begins to shake, and something is visibly wrong with Reardon. What's wrong? I, I, I'm not going to make it through. You must. You must. I, I'm dying. No. No. What will happen to the world? What will become of the world? What will I do? Go on, go on. You must come with me. They won't believe me if you're not there with me. Find Cabot. Find if Kill him if you have to. But kill Cabot. Kill Cabot. Kill Cabot. With those words, 
Reardon fades out of existence, and Andra was left alone in the cockpit. What a huge misdirection. Until now, we've been led to believe that Reardon was to be the main protagonist, and halfway through the episode, the story veers into another direction. Like Andra, we are left wondering what will happen next, now that he is on his own in present day. The ship lands and Andro climbs out. He walks through the trees toward the lake and discovers a woman alone in a boat. Through the branches, Andro gazes at this woman, and it's at this point that Dominic Frontieri's music comes in and we get an incredible theme. Much like the melody in Architects of Fear, there is a peacefulness with hints of sorrow in the underlining melody the serenity of being taken aback by indescribable beauty, and the sorrow of knowing that such a beautiful person would be repulsed and afraid if she saw you. There's a bit of menace too portrayed in the end of it as well, which I take to represent Andrew's appearance to the public. At least that's my interpretation of the piece. played by actress Shirley Knight, who has appeared in Salton Sea, the TV series House, and Law and Order, just to name a few. The woman exits her boat and walks along the grass, while Andro continues to watch from the trees. This sequence is so beautifully lit, the way the light reflects from portions of her hair and the blurred out branches waving behind Andro is very dreamlike. But that dream turns into a nightmare when the woman spots Andro, screams, and runs away. Andro walks to where the woman was and picks up a frog that she held in her hands. Not a single word is said, but through Landau's performance and Frontieri's score, we can tell that this ordinary frog is a beautiful creature that he is seeing for the first time, or at least the first time in ages. He smiles and releases it back into the water. This is only 40 seconds, but my goodness, this performance will continue to stir up emotions for generations to come. We then go to the young lady's home, where Andro has followed her there. He enters the house and stands behind her when she turns around and sees Andro. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to frighten you. I didn't hear you come in. Seen you? Somewhere. Yes, but not in the way I wanted you to. This is a boarding house, isn't it? Yes. If you're looking for a room, I think there are a couple of vacancies. Mrs. McCluskey, the landlady, will be here in a minute. Do you live here? Yes. A lot of the students from the university live here. It's quite beautiful. I like it. It's old-fashioned. 
good to cherish old things. Beauty is always on the edge of being lost. Andrew appears as a tall, handsome gentleman to the woman. We know he is using his power of hypnotic suggestion to appear differently in her eyes. And the use of his power is made evident by a slight dissolve followed by a dreamlike glow throughout the sequence. Suddenly, the landlady, Mrs. McCluskey, enters the room and falls under the hypnotic suggestion as well. Fans of the Twilight Zone may recognize the sound of her voice from her incredible performance in the classic episode, Eye of the Beholder, where she played Janet Tyler underneath her facial bandages. Did I hear someone talking about me? I thought I heard the expression, old thing. Oh, I think he was talking about the furniture, Mrs. McCluskey. I'm looking for lodging. Well, now, don't tell me a respectable-looking gentleman like you wants to plunk himself down in the middle of a day nursery. I'm sure it's not as bad as all that. Well, no. Not if you don't mind the telephone jabberers and the uh, patter of little feet all night. There's a great deal of comfort in the sounds of youth. Well, then I'm sure you'll enjoy them in stereo. Come along, I'll show you to a room. Don't you have any baggage? They will come later. You sound like an Englishman. Yes, I, I'm from London. Oh, you're going to be a professor at the school? Possibly, I'm an archaeologist. Archaeology? No wonder you're interested in old things. It's very nice. It's $10 a week, Professor. Andrew. Andrew stares deeply into Mrs. McCluskey's eyes and hands her money that doesn't exist. I was told a young man lives here, a student, by the name of Cabot. Bertram Cabot, Jr. Oh, yes. Bert did live here, but that was a year ago. He's been in the Army since November. In the Army? Oh, yes. He's at some big base up north. You should have asked Miss Anderson about him. Miss Anderson? Noel Anderson. The girl downstairs. <laughs> She's Bert's girlfriend. Yes, as a matter of fact, they're going to be married when he comes home on leave this weekend. But are you an old teacher of his? No. But I do want to talk with him about... about his future. From what I gather, Uncle Sam has him for another year, and then I think he's coming back here to do some postgraduate work in um, biology or something. I see. But he will be here this weekend. With bells on. Good. I'll talk with him then. Thank you for your kindness. Andro examines himself in a mirror and reveals a gun in his pocket. Just then, Mrs. McCluskey re-enters the room with linen and discovers Andro in his true form. She screams and passes out. When they tend to Mrs. McCluskey, she sees Andro in disguise. She figures she must have been startled by a shadow in the mirror. She's embarrassed. She leaves the room. Later that night, Andro sees Noel brushing her hair and enters the room. When a woman combs her hair, she imitates the motion of the stars. It's a nervous habit. Are you disturbed? I had a hallucination in the woods this afternoon. Horrible. Yes, horrible. My psych professor would consider it part of the secret nature of my dreams. Some great trial I'm about to face, like getting married. I know. Mrs. McCluskey told me. His name is Bertram Cabot, Jr. He's all the things I ever dreamed of in a man. 
He doesn't play at life or dream it. He lives it in all its seriousness and pleasure. Why did you call Bert Jr.? Well, I understand. He'd been given his father's name. Bert's father's name is Arnold. No, that can't be. But it is. I'm too early. I'm too early. Is something wrong? He isn't born yet. Who isn't born yet? Bertram Cabot, Jr. Of course he isn't born yet. Bert and I won't be married until this weekend. You will be his mother. You will be the mother of Bertram Cabot, Jr. The next morning, a car pulls up to the house. Andrew looks out the window and sees a man in military uniform walking up the steps toward the house. He rushes out of his room and heads downstairs to greet the man. We get a dissolve to indicate Andro's hypnotic suggestion as he exits the house. You are Bertram Cabot? Yes. Are you waiting for Noelle? She said she'd be down in a minute. May I ask you a question? Of course. To save your own child from destruction, would you press a button destroying all the children of another land? Are you asking me as a future father? Or as a prospective scientist with a duty towards humanity? I wasn't aware there was any distinction. But you do have a very practical and objective mind, like father, like son. Did you know my father? No, I didn't know your father. You are going to marry a very lovely and wonderful girl. I think so. Do you love her? Who are you? What does it matter? Will you answer my question? Do I love Noel? Do you? Yes, I do. And you must not marry her. Not marry her? You'll destroy her. Look, maybe it doesn't matter who you are, but my personal life is none of your business. Save all the future children of the world. I must somehow prevent one child from being born. What are you talking about? You must not marry her. Everything depends on it. You must believe that. How long have you known Noel? Not long, but long enough not to want her harmed. You're that Professor Andro she mentioned. Yes. Well, stay away from her. I want to help her. To help you. To help everyone. You must believe that. Help me. Come on. Who do you think you're kidding? If you try to marry her, I'll have no choice. Listen, you just stay away from her. I won't have any choice. Come on. Bertram Cabot is played by actor John Considine, who appeared in numerous TV shows such as Remington Steele, MacGyver, The Rockford Files, and he also played McClure in the Twilight Zone episode, The 30 Fathom Grave. Bertram and Noel are at the lake. Bertram tells Noel that he has to go to a local school to make sure his courses will be in place when he leaves the service in a year's time. Before leaving, he asks Noel if she'd rather wait, but Noel doesn't want to wait. This wedding will proceed as planned. The two embrace and Bertram heads to the university. Left by herself, Noelle walks up along the lake shore and lays on the grass. Just then, Andro walks up. This next sequence is another visual oral treat. I played the Andro Noel theme earlier 
and it was incredible on its own. Here, it enhances the dialogue between the two, and again, we get the dreamlike lighting from Conrad Hall that gives Noelle an angelic appearance. All this combined stirs up so much emotion in us, the viewer. I followed you. I know. I felt you. Can I sit close to you? Andro turns Noel's face towards his, and the two share a kiss. Tell me who you are. Noel, I don't know how to tell you to make you understand. Noel, you must love me. Please don't oh. say any more. I have to go. Noel, Noel, listen to me. I can't let you marry him. I have to go. No, please listen let to me, go. please. Together we can save eternity. Just then, Bertram returns. He tells Noel to go home. He approaches Andro and assures him that he and Noel will be married and there is nothing Andro can do to stop it. I have to stop it. I will try anything to stop it. I must no longer concern myself with your innocence. I can think of only one thing now. The children of all the world. You're out of your mind. You don't even make sense. I don't want to kill you, but I will. You and her, I must! I must! We dissolve to Andro lying in his bed, holding his gun. He hears the sounds of a church bell ringing in the distance. He jumps up, throws his gun into the mirror. He walks to the stairs and sees that Bertram and Noel are near the end of their wedding ceremony. He raises his gun, pointing it towards Bertram, when he is spotted and tackled by the wedding party. In the melee, Andro's hypnosis is broken, and everyone sees his true form. Andro runs out the door, but to Bertram's astonishment, Noel runs after him. She finds Andro in the woods near the lake. I wanted to see you. You saw me. Weren't you frightened like the others? All men have their moments of violence. Some it passes. I saw yours pass. You see my face? The change? The others did, I know. I, I lost control. I didn't see anything. Except that you couldn't bear to have me marry him. You tried to stop it. You didn't see what I really have. Tell me what you really are. Ugly. No ugliness in you. I know there isn't. Well, you no, know, not in my heart or my soul. Not in your face, either. 
Noelle tells Andro that there will be no wedding after all and that she wants to go away with Andro. But Andro explains that the world of tomorrow is not the bright future that everyone envisions, but only a dark road. I wanted to change it. I tried. You know what I had to do? I had to prevent you from bearing a child. Abbott's child. Destined to grow up to be the catalyst for the world's end. Truth is in my eyes, Noelle. You've served your purpose. I'll never have that child. The world will be different. No. In a year, perhaps more, you'll find Bert or he'll find you. You'll marry and you'll have that child. Unless you were to die now. Or... Or go with you. You can change destiny, Andrew. Take me. Keep me. Don't let Bert and I find each other again. Is it possible, Noelle? Could we make another future, a better world? Bertram spots the two and gives chase, along with two other men each carrying rifles. They chase Andro and Noel through the woods, only to see them climbing into a large spacecraft. Bertram fires at it, but it's too late as the ship takes off toward the sky, leaving Bertram looking upwards, clenching Noel's discarded wedding veil. We see the spacecraft fly through the time rift, when suddenly Andro begins to convulse. Andro? What's wrong? Noel, listen. We created a future into which I was never born. If you'd married him, had his child, my world would have come. But we've changed all of that. It would be all different. And I was never born. Andro fades from existence, and Noel is left crying, drifting in space alone, as the control voice takes us out. It is said that if you move a single pebble on the beach, you set up a different pattern, and everything in the world is changed. It can also be said that love can change the future. If it is deep enough, true enough, and selfless enough, it can prevent a war, Prohibit a plague. Keep the whole world whole. I love this episode so much. From beginning to end, it's perfect in my eyes. The love story, the quest to alter the fate of a doomed human race. And even though the ending is a tremendous bummer, I wouldn't change it. 
There's a quote in David J. Scow's The Outer Limits Companion from screenwriter Anthony Lawrence regarding this episode that states, I wanted to do a romantic fairy tale. I wanted to touch people emotionally with a kind of lyrical poetic thing that not too many people were doing on TV. He pulled it off in my opinion. I find every bit of this story beautiful and poetic. Now as you're watching Andro, who memorized every detail of Bertram Cabot Jr.'s life and is willing to kill his father in the past to save the future, you might be reminded of Sarah Connor driving to the home of Miles Bennett Dyson, director of special products at Cyberdyne Systems from the film Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Was the plot directly lifted from this episode? I guess only James Cameron knows for sure. This won't be the only time we talk about the Terminator franchise in the Outer Limits, but the next time, lawyers will be involved. A few bits of trivia. The episode originally had a different ending, which was to take place after the shot of Noel alone in the cockpit of Reardon's spacecraft. In this scene, Noel wakes as if from a dream on a grassy knoll and calls out for Andro, who is nowhere to be seen. She then encounters a kindly middle-aged man piloting an air car and through a brief conversation with him, she discovers that she is in London, and it is the year 2148. The scene was filmed on the MGM backlot, but was cut because it ran the episode into overtime. The Andro mask provided by Project Unlimited was imperfect and didn't fit Martin Landau very well. The appliance was corrected by Fred Phillips and John Chambers during Chambers' stint on the Six Finger. Of course, these bits of info come from David J. Scouse, The Outer Limits Companion few things before I go. I want to thank iTunes users Gamer71300 and RC Sutton's iPod for the kind and generous reviews on iTunes. I also want to say thank you to Jim LaGrada and Victor Jones for emailing me and sharing their memories and favorites of the show. If you want to share your thoughts and memories of the show, you can send your emails to victor at theouterlimitspodcast.com. Or you can find me on Twitter by typing in at Outer Limits Pod in the search bar. You can find the show on iTunes or over on the mothership that is the Twilight Zone Podcast.com. So that's going to do it for now, folks. Join me next time as we cover episode 7 of season 1 titled Obit. Until that time, I am Victor Gamboa, and in our return, control to you. <laughs>